when Drew said you can do anything, anything that you are interested in, I thought that is terrifying and too broad because I am interested in bizarre things. And so I don't know about you guys, but um, gaslighting and deconstruction have been the two words of 2020. Point one <laughs> plus uh, pivot. I hate that word. It makes my spine just shriek. What are the other? There's pivot. What's the other words? Give me your 2020 word of like, ugh. Say that again. New normal. New normal. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. New normal, pivot. What are other ones? Unprecedented. <gasps> That's so true. This is another unprecedented. You're like, I'm twitching with anxiety if you make me unprecedentedly pivot one more time. Uh, what's another one? What's another word? Language is powerful. Mike, give me a word. What's your hate, most hated word of 2020? Oh, no. Okay, we're at church, not that word. <laughs> That's my husband. Um, <laughs> so when he said, what do you want to talk about? I thought, well, deconstruction, I think for me, is maybe a journey that Mike and I have been on just for ourselves. We, um, who cares about oversharing, right? <laughs> TMI. We, about two years ago, had what I would call a religious trauma that we experienced. We were pastoring in the States and it's okay now, but it was really bad then. Um, we were working for someone that I, I think now I'm convinced meets the clinical criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And if you know anyone with NPD, the way that they get you there is they're the most kind, charismatic, warm, loving, basically Jesus. Um, and then they kill you. <laughs> so hopefully this is not being recorded. If it is, like, it is okay. It wasn't the guy in the States in Atlanta from Australia. Um, but that was him. <laughs> you know, honestly, we had to sign like NDAs. Like when your church asks you to sign an NDA, that's your sign, run, and a non-compete. I'm not kidding. There was a radius that if you quit, you were not allowed to work at a church within a so hundred mile radius. That should be your sign. But now that I'm in Canada, I'm like, come at me, bro. What lawyer are you going to hire? Like, <laughs> Anyway. Have I disclosed enough of my issues yet? <laughs> Do you feel at home and you're like, Drew's literally left the building. He started this fire and he's gone. Um, so we had like what I would call a religious trauma, um, you know, to the point of both of us being in as close to a mental health crisis that you can have in your 30s with something church related. And we found ourselves back in Canada in a matter of like three weeks, packed up everything, moved back, and we basically hid in my parents' house with a kid, and then I got knocked up at my parents' house. It was a great year of my life. Um, just struggling. Like, who are we? Is there a God? Wow, that's a scary, terrifying question. Yes, the answer is yes, but who is he? Where is he? I'm just terrified and unsure of basically everything. Mike's just glad that we stayed married, right? Because we were deconstructing everything at that point. Even marriage was like, you, who are you? Um, and it was terrifying. And we were reading a lot and crying a lot and eating a lot you know, and other substances, but we're good now. And uh, we came to a place of, I wouldn't say healing, but I'd say we're on that journey. 
Um, so back to the beginning, when Drew said, what do you want to talk about? You can do anything. I was like, okay, unleash the beast. So we're going to be talking about deconstruction, if that's okay. And the next three weeks will be deconstructing deconstruction, which <laughs> sounds horrible. Hopefully it's not painful. Um, but this week we're going to talk about how did we get here and what is it? Next week will be what is cheap deconstruction? And then the following week will be like, okay, so now what? How do we reconstruct what we've deconstructed now that we're all deconstructing? If I got paid for every time I say a variation of that word, <laughs> it would be, we'd be set. So Drew is also right. I am a therapist, which that may also terrify you. <laughs> I'm registered and licensed too, which is amazing. Um, they don't let anyone, but they let me. And uh, what's, what I find a lot at work is, um, when people sit down, they normally present with, specifically when it comes to anger, they present with, Laura, I'm really struggling with anger. It's absolutely destroying my life, from road rage to a short fuse to snapping at my kids, and everything inside of me wants to be able to control it, but I can't, and I just need this eliminated from my life. I need you to help me make the anger go away. Um, which makes sense. If you're losing at your kids snapping, have a short fuse, and I mean road rage these days, you know, there's consequences for it, right? Um, and yet what I found over the years is that anger is a really heavily stigmatized emotion, right? It's one of those ones that we want to get rid of. Um, but if you think about it like an iceberg, anger really is just the tip, right? It's the symptom of other stuff that's going on. What's hard in a culture that avoids all negative emotions is that we end up gaslighting ourselves. There you go, I used the other buzzword. By basically saying, everything's fine, it's fine, it's fine, you're the issue, you just gotta move on, you just gotta get over it. When, if we see it as a signpost, if there's anger flaring up in your body, whether it's in road rage situation with your kids, whatever it is, it's actually something we're supposed to listen to, right? We're supposed to be like, why am I angry? And for a lot of people, that is too scary of a place to go, right? Because oftentimes it illuminates other stuff, right? So why am I losing it? Well, probably related to there's boundaries that are being violated, the relationship, the, this, you hate your job, you hate your life. To ask why am I angry actually feels more destabilizing than pretending you're fine and just ignoring the outburst, right? Or going to a therapist and saying, help me deal with this outburst but that outburst will happen again eventually, right? Unless we go to the iceberg and we see what's happening underneath. Well, in the church world, I would guess, or I'd say, that doubt is a, an emotion that has a very similar stigma, right? There's a lot of stuff that's happening under the surface for all of us, right? But when doubt kind of pokes its head up, especially when you're in a faith community, it's so heavily stigmatized. I don't know if you've ever, I don't know, in your small group said, like, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore. Like, if you ever want to experience an awkward room, you should just try that. And watch your faith community be like, well, I didn't even know how to begin helping you with that. You just said it. 
because most of us have learned, we've been socialized to hide it, right? Which is why anger normally presents itself with your family, right? Doubt, we hide it, we hide it, hide it, yet we're in these faith families. And when it comes out, because of the reactions that people have, we then, again, gaslight ourselves, and we're like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I'm just going to move past this. I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. But again, just like anger, if it's not dealt with, it does come to the surface again. Right, And so that looks like maybe being in a faith family of origin as a child, never having the place that you can ask questions or asking them and having your Sunday school teacher just instantly start praying for you. And you're like, what? You didn't even answer me. Now you're just worried about me? That makes no sense, right? That you end up walking into your first week of university, you sit in a philosophy class and you're like, oh, that's it. If I'm done, you're finally answering these questions or I can have this tough conversation here. The problem is, is that's not deconstruction, but that's what we think it is, right? That's a faith crisis. But what's happening is people are, are losing the plot or, or rewriting the whole script because we as a church don't have an environment where people can say, I'm really honestly struggling. Like, think for a second about the first four minutes when I was introducing myself, how terrifying that was, and then saying I had a faith crisis and that we were struggling and we were even indulging in things how uncomfortable that was. And you're just like, please tell me you pulled it all together. But what if people are able to be that authentic in your small group, right? And say like, no, really, a lot of people like a pastor after they've gone through it, right? A lot of us like people in our small group after they've gone through their like fire experience and they come out gold, but that's just not the human experience. It's not mine. It may be yours, but it's not my human experience. So we need to be able to create faith environments where doubt is an emotion that's allowed, right? Where kids, adults, anyone can say, there's this one thing that I am stuck on. Um, next week, we're going to talk about cheap deconstruction. And I think what people are terrified of is that if they create an environment where someone can say, I don't know if I believe this part of the Bible, or I'm really offended by you know, I want God to be more elastic with sexuality. And if you, I'm really offended by that, that we, we don't know what to do, so we shut people down and we shut down, right? What would it look like if people could doubt and they could doubt in public, right? What if, what if we could ask those questions and it could be okay if we don't have the answers or there's a tense space that exists because it's just awkward, right? What's really interesting and why I think um, deconstruction has become like a mainstream word, right? This is not just a religious word right now. It's a mainstream word. Is because I think all of culture is actually struggling with doubt. All of culture. Because when we look at the history of, of society, and this is like a really like, you know, especially if you're like into sociology, you're gonna be like, she just butchered that history. I am gonna butcher the history, okay? But from a very broad brush, we start with um, authority being found in tradition and the church, right? All of society, that was how it was structured, the king and the church or the queen and the church and religion and truth and God was a thing, one thing, the thing. And all of society was structured around that 
And then we have the Enlightenment that happens, just to like nosedive through history. <laughs> we have the Enlightenment that happens and modernity comes to be. And that's the idea that, wait a second, I don't know if I think God has any authority. I don't even know if I believe in him. I don't know if I can trust him. We need some alternative type of authority. And so that's where you have, you know, um, science and arts and all of these other modes of what, where is truth and how can I find it and where does it exist? Comes to the surface. Then we're right now in post uh, modernism, post-modernity, where it's this question of like, wait a second, who is benefiting from that? Who, what structures are existing underneath all of this? What meta-narrative, you, you know, all those kind of words that you hear in the news and you're like, next, what is that? <laughs> what does that mean? Is that we're actually in a season where people don't trust science, right? So we went from the church to basically science, very basic, there's more, <laughs> to then this idea that not, even that can't be trusted, right? So you have prominent theories like queer theory that is saying you can't even, biology cannot be trusted to predict anything, right? And that's now part of our mainstream um, mass intellect, right? It's what we all have come to see, which is why something like COVID has been really interesting. Because I don't know if you've seen that there's no COVID, that there is COVID, there's a great philosopher, fabulous, who has coined this term called fake news. You know that guy? He's really onto something. But it's the most postmodern um, kind of soundbite, right? What is real? What is true? Nothing can be trusted. Fake news, no virus, anti-vax, pro-vax, the whole shebang. And then COVID shuts the church down from gathering physically. This is a crazy thing to admit, but today is my first time in a church since COVID, because we've been doing everything online. And I'm like, my child was born. He's never been in a church before. Um, he was week three of COVID. It was terrifying. Mike wore a mask, didn't, was there, was not. I was alone laboring, then he came back. And then two hours later, after giving birth, we were in my house eating McDonald's with a brand new baby on the couch being like, do we get kicked out? <laughs> like, thank God this is not my first. I'd be terrified, right? So COVID has been this like accelerant of deconstruction as a Christian, we feel it in the church, but I take two seconds on your Facebook and you can see it in the world, right? Not just about God things, but about the world. Um, and everyone is actually a little bit drowning and definitely deconstructing, trying to figure out where is, where is an anchor for me? What is something that I can hold on to? So what is deconstruction? This is where it gets a little bit boring, okay? But just hold on. Deconstruction is a sociology term that was coined in like the 1960s, so not very long ago, by a French philosopher and a group of philosophers that were basically trying to understand how something gets to mean something, okay? Can I tell you in their words how they say it? No, yes, okay, yeah, you can zone out, <laughs> go for it, I'd zone out here, this is the part I'd zone out for. Um, so what they're trying to do is lay bare the hidden assumptions behind that which we assume about our world. So whether we are talking about a concept, 
a construct or a fact that our world is experienced by each of us through lenses that we are part of creating and we're also part of sustaining. I'm gonna dive a little bit deeper and then I have a great like example that will bring it to life. Um, these lenses are products of all of us. It's a part of our culture, our language, our history. In fact, these lenses are so strong and all encompassing that we are not aware of them even when we're trying to talk about them. So they are constructing us while we're trying to deconstruct them and I'll have an example, I swear. A consequence of this is that even when we analyze a structure, we are still part of it, right? Even when we critique it, we critique only the part of it that we can see. So an example of this is when I was, Mike and I were just about to be engaged and I was living in Africa and I was, it was the fall, and I was speaking to someone that was local to the area saying like, oh, I just, I'm missing apple picking at home right now. Like, I really wish I'd go apple picking. And they were like, what do, you, what do you mean apple picking? And I was like, well, you know, you like, you go and you pay for a bag and you post a photo. Actually, it was so old that back then, like Facebook had been around for two years. Okay, it's a long time ago, but you know, it's like this thing that you like, you share a photo and you, you buy apples and you take photos and then you leave. And I really am missing this. <laughs> and I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, so wait, you pay to harvest a farmer's field in Canada? <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, yes! That is precisely what we do. I'm like, we do it for strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, I'm like, that's what we do to our agriculture. And then we had this hilarious conversation where they were like, basically, how can I create this in Nairobi where people will pay me to let me, let them harvest my field, right? And then I was like, and then you have to buy what you pick, right? And they just couldn't come up with this concept. So this is what I mean by structures that deconstruction is trying to take apart. In that scenario, we have facts. The facts are apples are picked, right? We can all agree that's a fact. Even, yeah, I think every philosopher would agree that an apple is picked, because we're not talking about the ones on the ground. Even then, we'd be picking them, so an apple is picked. Well, the structure that people would be deconstructing is how that fact receives meaning, okay? And how those meanings affect action. Right? So when I'm deconstructing it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm part of this culture where everything is a little narcissistic and we just want to post about these lavish lives that we have. Like, I am so bougie that I can go pay to pick my own apples. And I'm not even upset about that. That doesn't even rock my world. I don't even know the word harvesting. I'm doing it in heels, <laughs> like, so that my outfit looks good on that Instagram post because we had a family activity that day, right? Whereas a friend on the other side of the world, the way that they structure those facts is very different. Like these are, this is food for my family. This is an enterprise. Um, if you have land and you have a field and no one is taking photos and do you see what I mean? So that's starting from the bottom up facts with adding the meaning with a cultural lens that changes the actions of both people. For them, they're going to work. For me, that's probably what I'm doing on Saturday between two and four, right? Um, deconstruction is when we start at the top. Now, what, would I have ever deconstructed apple picking if I hadn't had that startling conversation? 
Probably not, unless you've met a local farmer and they are really judgmental of us city <laughs> and they will deconstruct it for you and they're like, you people, like it's so dumb. But really, that probably doesn't happen because how many farmers do I hang out with? A lot, <laughs> you know? So, so those moments tend to be what needs to happen before we deconstruct, right? As a culture, COVID is doing it, right? Um, as a culture, George Floyd, he's doing it, right? Um, even when, if we think about um, First Nations children and the history in our country, what's crazy is that not even 50 years ago, colonization was a good thing. Like, you are a colony, you were colonized, this is a good thing, which now, you can't even wrap your head around it, right? And until those graves are found, even though there's people that have in our society been trying to push, like, let's deconstruct this history here. We have some questions we need to be asking. That moment tends to be when it finally starts. So again, what's hard in the church is people don't normally start deconstructing until they have a crisis of faith or they have a crisis in their faith family or in their faith family of origin, right? So if you got saved as a kid, like on the pew, because your mom said, if you want to go to McDonald's, you have to accept Christ, then you said yes, right? And if your Sunday school teacher didn't let you ask any questions, what we call that in counseling is an issue of differentiation. So if in your family of origin, you aren't able to differentiate, you're not able to come out from underneath your mom and dad, Issues happen, right? In a faith family, it's a very similar experience. If you're not allowed to ask questions of that Sunday school teacher, that youth pastor, that person, and you've kind of just adopted what was constructed for you, you, you really do end up having a crisis when you finally get out on your own, right? Other scenario is let's say we're in a faith family like this and some kind of thing happens, right? And this family breaks apart. That's a thing where people start deconstructing or university. So yes, religious deconstruction is a pulling apart of the belief system that you were raised in or the constructed system that you were given. I don't know if you were given a constructed faith system, but I certainly was. And Alicia's not. Well, actually, it's really interesting because I remember when you got saved because I was just coming on the scene and you were a brand new baby Christian, right? And so what's really cool about your experience is that you got to be actively part of constructing your faith but it doesn't mean you'd never deconstruct, right? Or have a, a crisis of faith or a questions about things, right? So why people deconstruct, we have to have grace and mercy for it. Now, what's interesting about um, constructed faith, by the way, have, has anyone read the book After Doubt by A.J. Swabababa? <laughs> I've practiced it, can't say it. It's a good one. So a lot of what you're hearing is really informed by that book. And if you're struggling with faith, I would do a nosedive into that one. That'd be a good first book to pick up. Um, but he um, mentions uh, when he, it's either in the uh, podcast or in the book, he talks about the history of slave Bibles. Have you ever heard of the concept of a slave Bible? Yeah, it's interesting because they've argued about what the intention was, but basically European missionaries who still felt that slaves in, the, in North America deserved to be saved, didn't want to enlighten them that God actually wasn't up for slavery. 
So what they did was they cut out Exodus, <laughs> they cut out any mention about slaves going free, and then they used those scriptures as a way to proselyze, as a way to present the gospel to people. Well, they certainly learned that Jesus loves them. They certainly got, you know, salvation was offered to them. But was that the whole picture? Not even close, right? So what they were given that was constructed was damaged. Some of us in our faith family of origin, unfortunately, because of theology and issues, that's what we've been handed is something that has a lot of holes and a lot of gaps. And maybe you've never been able to say like, I'm really upset about that, but you, you have the right to begin processing that. And that book's a great start or someone in this row who's already read it could help you kind of walk through it. So it's okay to look at what, what was constructed and given to you and ask questions about it. Right? That's an okay thing. And I think until the church says this is allowed, what will happen is people will stay silenced until they're finally able to differentiate and then they run for the hills. Right? And I think that's what we see happening with the church. Right? Um, there's an interesting thing. Thaddeus' wife probably can pronounce it because she's a doctor and I can't, but it's no, no, so, no socomial infection. And a nosocomial infection is also known as a hospital-acquired infection. And it's the idea that when you go into the hospital with, let's say, a broken arm, you can actually get an infection that only existed in the hospital. Oh yeah, it's a thing, right? Yeah, Alicia's nodding, she's like, that's a thing. And so like right now, everyone's terrified of people getting COVID in the hospital, but you can get an infection that actually could kill you that has nothing to do with why you went at the first place, right? And often that can happen in a faith family of origin too. The place that's supposed to be the healthy place, the place where you receive healing, the place where you get fixed and put back together, we're humans and we're not perfect, <laughs> right? And so if in your history you've picked up an HIA or a nosocomial infection, um, actually they say that one in 10 people who go to a hospital get one. That's a terrifying stat. <laughs> One in 10, that's 10%, that's a tithe. The hospital is tithing on you, like on your health and well-being, right? And I would guess in the church too, I don't know if you've ever had an experience with a human who's sinful and just thought, I don't like this at all, but can I just say, hold on, because that's not Jesus, right? And so if you take the risk to go on a faith process, which is a doubt journey as well, because you can't have doubt if you don't have faith, right? Um, and if you've come up with someone who wants to infect you, just find the other 90%, okay? So really quick, I'm gonna talk about the only kind of Christian that most of us are, know about who really doubted, and it was Thomas. And then we'll wrap up real quick, because I know it's your Sunday night. Um, doubting Thomas has a bad rep, because he's known as Doubting Thomas for all of history, and he was actually a great, great guy which we'll get to, but John 20, 19, 31. It's interesting. I'm, actually, can I just read it? The Bible at church. Hmm, let's do it. Okay, verse thir uh, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Which is not the great commission, but it's kind of cool. It's the first like mention of it. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, which is also pretty cool because this is not Acts 2. This is in John 20, right? That's for another sermon. 
drew. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, so we're thinking he's a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand, place it in my side. Do you believe? Um, Don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, which by the way is the first disciple to proclaim him as God and and lordship, right? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, disciples, which are recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So like four things really quick. The first is we have no idea where Thomas was, right? If you back up a few verses before that, we see that John, the the one who's writing the book who refers to himself in third person, he actually had an interaction with the empty tomb and the clothes. And it says that when he saw the clothes and the tomb, then he believed, okay? So a lot of these disciples actually had evidence that they needed before they believed, okay? What's funny is when we read this, we read this like Thomas is accounting for Jesus judging and cursing Thomas for his unbelief. But I think it may, I don't see a curse, I see an observation. And what I actually see is that observation is on our behalf. And it's not saying don't you dare doubt. It's saying blessed are you who don't get to have the evidence and yet you still believe. I think it's interesting that the church body around him, which was the disciples, are never mentioned in this scenario in the sense that if they had literally just seen Jesus alive, why were they locked up? And why were they harping on Thomas if he didn't believe? If I said to you, oh yeah, COVID is cured (laughs) because I'm immune to it, so I'm just gonna, you know, you should be too. And then instead of going into a group of people who all had it, I hid you would say, you clearly don't believe that you're immune to it, because why won't you expose yourself to it? And be like, well, I do believe. I'm just going to hide over here, right? It makes sense that Thomas is like, well, I want to see for myself. Y'all are hiding. If you saw for yourself and yet you're still hiding, I want to see for myself. And I think it's encouraging that what he said, this is what I need, the first thing that Jesus said when he came is not Thomas, hi. He laid out the things that Thomas said he needed. You need my hands and my side. That's what I'm gonna go right for Thomas and say, here's my hands and here's my side. And I believe deeply that God can handle your questions and he's not offended by them. And he can handle your need for evidence. Okay, now do I think that you're gonna get to poke his hands? I don't know, but I have actually met people who have had the most um, crazy, crazy, interactions with God because of what they asked. And I think he can handle it. And that may make me just over the top. But the other thing I appreciate about Thomas is that he wasn't convicted until he was convicted. It would have been very easy for him to follow the faith flow of his friends right? And be like, you're right, he's alive, he's alive. And yet he withheld his conviction until he could actually be convicted of it. 
And the crazy thing about Thomas is, um, actually, I went to India when I was 19 to his tomb. Thomas went to India, and basically, if you are a Christian in India, it's because your ancestors, specifically in that south and southern part of India, your last name is most likely Thomas. And it's because generations ago, Thomas told your parents about Jesus. It's unbelievable, right? Thomas was martyred in India for telling people about Jesus. He went, once he was convinced and had that conviction, it took him to the ends of the world, right? And he died for it. You won't die for it if you go with the faith flow of the people around you. <laughs> you gotta work it out, right? And it's okay if Mark, Luke, and Mary are all convinced. If you're not, don't sell yourself short the journey of walking out your faith, right? With, with God, he can handle the questions. Um, yeah, I believe the danger of teaching that that passage is about don't doubt is it makes us gaslight our own faith journey, right? And yet, what would happen if we were able to sit in that place of like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, until God and the Holy Spirit worked it over the finish line for us, which I believe he will do because the very end of that verse is that all of this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the gospel, and I believe he will send his son and he will come after you in whatever way you need to to let you know that God loves you and that this is all the plan. I have one quote and then I'm going to end. We're doing it. We're still alive. The smiles are drooping, but we're good. <laughs> when I was on my journey of researching, I came across a blog by a guy named Josh De Kaiser. I don't know if he's a thing. Is he a thing? Do you never? No, you're nodding. You're just encouraging me. He's like, happy face. Um, I don't know if he's a person. I just found his blog, and I was just reading it. So if he's someone, is he a person, Drew? No? Okay, he's just a blogger. Because um, sometimes I'll say something, and they're like, they're like literally famous for that blog. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I think he's just a normal person. And he was talking about deconstruction, and I was a few blogs in on his de deconstruction journey. And this is part of the blog, so I copy and pasted it. All credit goes to Josh, who we don't know who he is or where he lives, but I think this is stunning. It's his personal path of deconstruction. It says this, My process of deconstruction led me to take apart my own faith. It was not a pretty process. Nope, not. I experienced a lot of anger mixed with a sense of liberation, and I deeply felt the anxiety one has when realizing that the old certainties are gone. I wondered if I was going to become an atheist until I deconstructed even atheism and moved beyond that. In the process, I discovered that, that doctrine, dogma, and ethics are constructs that can either be helpful or unhelpful, facilitate the gospel or hinder it. I began to see uh, that the systems of thought are invariably dimmed at, or sorry, what I did is the printer ran out of ink, so I hand wrote the rest of the quote. <laughs> So I haven't suddenly stopped being able to read. It's just I can't read me. I can read a computer. <laughs> I can't read me. Okay. I began to see how, it doesn't say law, how. How these systems of thought are invariably aimed at domesticating God and enlisting Christ into the service of power games, the attempt to reduce existential anxiety or keeping one from facing inherent patterns of justice in one's own belief system. And this is where I 
peopled. But I also arrived at a position where I recognized that the Christian faith contains behind the layers of myth, legend, religious embellishment, and more, an unconstructed or non-deconstructable core. This core is not something we can define or possess. If we could, it would have been itself a constructed piece of our constructed reality. Do you see constructed, constructed? <laughs> Yet, we attempt to name it, always aware that proper naming voice both identifies and respects the impenetrability of that which is identified. I realized that when I encountered the figure of Christ, in the midst of this deconstructive process, I encountered something that had been deconstructing me all along almost as if it had been drawing me into the deconstruction process so as to expose who I was in my vulnerable nakedness. The Christian faith names Christ as the site of the unconditional gift of God's grace. In traditional parlance, Christ is the incarnation or embodiment of divine reality among humanity. Both the traditional formula and my postmodern one are not an attempt to exhaustively say what Christ is, but rather that Christ is that which we recognize as the unconditional gift of grace. It is a naming that stops and then stammers out of an inability to come to terms with that reality that is so different from us. Luther already discovered that as an unconditional gift, Christ represents a radically subversive presence that thwarts all power games. Precisely because Christ is an unconditional gift of goodness, forgiveness, and grace, the cross of Christ stands as an original anomaly over and against all religious thinking and all meta-narratives that usurp reality into an interpretation that demands assent. For me, Christ does not represent a new meta-narrative, unlike many forms of Christianity, but simply questions ours again and again. Basically, what he's saying is that in the deconstruction process, as he went through all of it, even deconstructing atheism itself, what he found was that Christ's grace was deconstructing him. And that grace is this word that none of us can, I get goosebumps thinking about it, none of us can wrap our minds around it because the power falls at grace. There's no power. It's just total good, total love. It's, it's Jesus. And I really believe that if you're on this journey, you'll find him at the end of it. And I want to encourage you, don't forsake the journey because you're selling yourself short, right? It is terrifying. It's destabilizing. It's all of those things. Or your friends or family that are going through it. But know that at the end of it, he stands. He doesn't fall. Just like with the apples, the meaning had different things. The fact was that apples are picked. And I'm convinced you get rid of the systems, you get rid of the buildings, you get rid of all of it, that this will stand, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's why Thomas's story is written, that you would read it and you'd believe.